He stands on the highest peak of preaching endeavours. A colossus towering over your average priest or pastor. Those of us who occupy the foothills of Mount Sermon can only gaze adoringly at his feet because that's all we can see of him. So far above us does he tower. At gatherings of clergy, his name is mentioned in hushed tones, if it is mentioned at all. Some of us are too in awe of him and too conscious of our own inadequacy that even naming him appears disrespectful. Donald Thomas. But you can call him Your Majesty. Quite simply, he is listed in the Guinness Book of Records as having preached the longest sermon ever delivered. A challenging 93 hours. God's filibuster. There are no reports of any survivors. And you'll be pleased to hear that his record is in no danger this morning. Actually, uh, researchers by uh, social scientists have found that uh, if you took everyone who has ever fallen asleep in a sermon and laid them end to end, they'd be much more comfortable. (laughs) Now, if you think that achievement is impressive, then you're going to love an Episcopal priest from Lake Onion, Michigan, named John Albrecht. Because he is in the Guinness Book of Records for an equally superhuman feat at the other end of preaching. The shortest ever sermon. Now we're talking. Now for the sermon to pass the scrutiny of the judges, it had to meet three criteria. It had to make sense, like that's ever stopped us. It has to be on a Christian theme or Bible passage, and it has to say something meaningful. So, Sunday morning arrives. The parish is eager, excited, gripped by anticipation. They've gone into the highways and byways and called lost sheep to flock to the safety of their pen, where they may graze serenely on the verdant pasture provided by their shepherd. The press are there because they have heard the good news. Mountains will move, hills will tremble, metaphors will be mixed and infinitive split. Not a pew is empty and not a breath is drawn as Albrecht climbs into the pulpit, mind clear, heart bold. From his fortress, three feet above contradiction, he surveys the massed ranks of God's people, utters a silent prayer that the Holy Spirit will give him a message worthy of God's ambassador, shuffles his notes and proclaims, Love. And with that, he bows his head, turns and descends the mountain back to the world of humans. And that was it. Now, I would do that too, but I'm very careful not to plagiarise. <laughs> the problem with the love of God is that we've heard it all before. 
The problem with the love of God is that it no longer shocks us. The problem with sermons on the love of God is that they pleasantly wash over a congregation and gently rock us to sleep. They are like those phone apps of ambient music that you listen to at bedtime that cuddle you into unconsciousness. The next thing you know, the offertory is playing and the usher is shoving a plate in your face. The problem with John 3.16 is that somewhere in the 1990s it became a cliché. We saw it once too often scrawled on a day-glow pink poster photobombing a sports commentator. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Nothing to see here. Get back to your lives, citizens. So rather than talk to you about love, let me tell you about Monty. Monty was my brother's pet. We were both grown up by the time he bought Monty, and one Saturday afternoon he dropped by my house to introduce Monty to my kids and me. Monty was heavy. He travelled in a large crate. Keith, my brother, announced his arrival, struggled through the door, lopsidedly carrying the crate, lugged it into the living room and gratefully plonked it on the floor. I called my boys and they ran downstairs, screeching with anticipation. They took their places, close enough uh, to, to, to see, but not too close to touch. Keith softly opened the crate so as not to startle Monty and ever so carefully, with all the strength he could muster, lifted him out. As he appeared, my boys gasped at his size and felt that rush of adrenaline that leaves children not knowing whether to be excited or frightened. Mercifully, Monty behaved himself and their courage eventually swallowed up their nerves. They soon felt brave enough to ask if they could touch him, and they did. Then to stroke him, and they did. Then hold him, and they did. But there was someone else in the house that afternoon whose reaction to the visit of Monty I was more anxious about. And here he comes. Sinjin, my ginger, short-haired domestic cat... He swaggers into the living room in that haughty way that cats display when they know they're the top of the food chain. He stops his stray cat strut when he sees the gaggle of humans huddled around he knows not what. Then he plods over to us to get a better view in that nosy way that cats display when they think they're missing out on something interesting. I gulp and leap to my feet. I throw myself on the ground, forming a human barrier between Sinjin and Monty, fearing the devouring of one or the butchering of the other. For Monty, you see, was named after the satirical British TV show. Monty, you see, was a python. But my prone body proved to be pretty feeble as a barrier for an animal that can jump like, well, a cat. 
And in a moment, he hurdled and hung, suspended in midair like Wiley Coyote in a Roadrunner cartoon when he realises he's run off the edge of a cliff. And then, when he had gracefully landed and peered into the eyes of the serpent, something amazing happened. He chilled. He sniffed and prodded and studied and then wandered off very unimpressed. And so we learned something that day. British domestic cats are not born with a fear of snakes. And why should they be? There's only one species of poisonous snake in the UK and it can't swallow a cat. Humans too are not born with a fear of snakes. We learn it from our carers. Don't stroke the rattler. Good advice. (laughs) Snakes and death, death and snakes. No matter how you say it, it always sounds true. They go together like complaining and unhappiness. We usually think that complaining is caused by unhappiness, but ancient Israel discovered the opposite is true. Unhappiness is caused by complaining. We read it in the Hebrew lesson. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread and no water, and we detest this miserable food. How is it possible to look back on slavery with nostalgia? But unhappiness follows complaining. In this case, the unhappiness is an infestation of poisonous snakes. Many people die, but many people are healed. God provides a balm, an antidote to the venom, a bronze snake on a stick. Look at the snake and be healed. Behold the thing that will kill you and live. Consider your sin and be free. Don't do a sinjin merely examining the snake and walking away. Stare at your death and live. There would be no John 3.16 without John 3.14 and 15 where Jesus refers to this story of snakes and death and compares himself with that bronze snake. (laughs) How's that for an image? Animal metaphors for Jesus. Jesus a lamb. I love that one. Jesus a lion. That makes me feel good. Jesus a mother hen. Lovely, but Jesus a snake? Yes, because when he is nailed to the cross and we look at him in faith and with gratitude for his earth shattering, grave robbing, death defeating demise, we receive our healing. The sting is drawn. The anti-venom of God's healing cascades through our bloodstream, saturates our brains and floods our nervous system. Our mortal terror is swallowed up by the cross on which we gaze. It's that Ash Wednesday shock, being told that you're dust, you're going to die. Now live like it. It's a month into Lent, and just in case we've forgotten it, here it is again. You're going to die. 
Look it full in the face. Sense it lurking in your shadow. Feel its icy breath on your neck. And then receive the antidote. The antidote to my waywardness and yours, my moral lapses and yours, our alienation from God, creation and each other is the death of Jesus. In God's creation, the cure for bacteria is bacteria. The cure for snakes is a snake and the cure for death is a death. Remember that I said I wouldn't talk about the love of God? I was teasing. How can I not talk about the love of God? Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, says our patron Paul, and God's love is the gospel. God's vast, irresistible, indescribable, transforming, liberating, exhilarating love. You can't stop it. You can't limit it. You can't deflect it or oppose it. You can deny it, but it will still snare you. Take up mental arms against it, but it will still overwhelm you. Build barriers to it, but you will never prevent it scaling your walls and ravaging your heart. There is nothing you can do to make God love you less. Let me say that again. There is nothing you can do to make God love you less. There is nothing you can do. Nothing you can do to make God love you less. Nothing. Nothing. We have read the Ten Commandments this morning. You can choose to go out from here and intentionally break all ten of them. You can. But even if you do, God will not love you any less than he does now. His heart will break the way any parent's heart breaks when it sees its child destroying themselves. But he will not love you any less than he would if you went out here and served the world. The problem with the love of God is not that we've heard it all before. The problem with the love of God is that maybe we've not even begun to grasp it yet. The problem with the love of God is that it is so unfair. He refuses to treat people the way they deserve. He will not be bullied by sin-fixated Christians into damning sinners and smiting the godless. He won't. He can't. He won't have his arm twisted by anxious, insecure preachers into loving the righteous more than the unholy, churchgoers more than pagans, Christians more than Muslims. He will not be forced into acting against his nature by mere mortals. And his nature is to love and to love and to love. He can do no other. When you see a snake, remember that. Jesus lifted high on a cross to give and give and give because he loves and loves and loves. And there's nothing you can do about it. 
turns out Father Albrecht was inspired. Not only will you never forget his sermon and can now quote it in its entirety to anyone who is interested, but he will be in the Guinness Book of Records for all time unless someone comes along with a sermon that consists of a single word of fewer than four letters. But if they do, they will not find a word that speaks more fluently and loudly than the one he chose. For in that one word, the fourth word of the most famous Bible verse of all, he sums it all up. The nature of God, the heart of Jesus, and the command that propels us out of our self-absorption to live for Christ and his world. Amen.